Welcome back to Labor Law Radio. I'm Michael Fraser, your host. And uh, we've been talking uh, for the first part of the segment about uh, Division of Labor Standard Enforcement, and we're continuing that here. If you do have any questions, uh, www.laborlawradio.com. Click on the link to submit them via email, or you can call us at 888-678-7229. Where we are right now is we talked about uh, the DLSE or the Labor Board and what happens when you bring a claim there and what types of issues come up in terms of discovery and the surprise that's going to come up at the actual hearing day itself. But what I want to talk about now is more substantive stuff in terms of what claims you can and cannot bring to the, uh, to, at the labor board. And this is rather unfortunate, but the labor board doesn't tell you that these things exist or that you can't bring these claims. Because like I said, the labor board's not there as your attorney. They're not there as your legal advisor. They're simply there to listen to your claim and see whether it entitles you to any compensation. But it's your job to formulate the entire legal theory and determine you know, who owes you how much money and then present your evidence to the labor board. They are not there to give you legal advice. So the biggest thing that the California Labor Board cannot award is something known as liquidated damages. Now, these are created by federal statute, and you can only get them if you're, you know, the, the employer is investigated by the Department of Labor or you bring a civil case in, in court. And these are also known as double damages because for most overtime claims, they will double the amount of damages that you will get, essentially, instead of worrying about all types of contingent penalties and interest and back pay and things like that. Uh, Congress passed a law and it said, well, when you don't pay somebody overtime, you need to pay them the overtime, but you also need to pay them twice that amount as liquidated damages. And that way you don't have to get into, well, they also didn't contribute that extra money to my 401k and my 401k uh, increased 20% last year and I'm losing out on that money and and all of that. So rather than having to go present all those uh, arguments, the court says, we're not going to hear them. The only thing we're going to do is pay you twice what you were due and that's going to be sufficient. It also serves to penalize the employer in terms of you know making sure that they comply with the law, but uh, they can't uh, be awarded by the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement. Now, in order to be awarded them, you need to be non-exempt under federal law, and sometimes it's federal law is a little bit more favorable to the employer. Sometimes it's more favorable to the employee, depending on uh, what the exemption is. But uh, in a lot of cases, you know, I mean, if you're a blue-collar worker, an hourly worker, or something like that, um, you're going to be entitled to uh, liquidated damages. Uh, if you're a high-tech worker or a computer programmer, like we talked about earlier, very easy to be exempt under the uh, computer professional exemption and uh, under you know the federal computer professional exemption, and you're not going to be entitled to liquidated damages. You're only going to be entitled to uh, damages under California law. But you don't really want to bring your tech case to the labor board for other reasons. Mainly, they're complex and the labor board is there. I mean, they hear a lot of cases in a day. You're going to go in there and sit there and wait for a couple hours while they hear four or five or six or seven cases uh, in, in advance of yours, depending on which one. If you go downtown Los Angeles, for instance, it's packed with people in the morning and they just, you know, clear them all out throughout the day. So there's a lot of cases that these hearing officers are hearing. They need to clear off their calendars and they don't always spend the time that they need to thoroughly understand a complex case, especially when you're making a lot of money. They're, my experience with them is they are not as sympathetic to people who are highly compensated, and they're not going to give those claims the fair shake they deserve versus, you know, you go to court, judges hear large claims all the time. It doesn't really mean anything to them one way or another, and generally they're going to spend the time and effort to listen to the arguments of both sides and then make a more reasoned decision. So the main thing 
in terms of your claim, though, you can't get liquidated damages. And these claims sort of fall into one of two categories. They're either so simple that liquidated damages and federal uh, non-exemption are pretty much a given, like I said, for blue collar workers and things like that, then you know, you, you don't want to bring your claim to the labor board because you're essentially cutting off 50% of your, your total reward that you can get, or the claims are extremely complicated and you don't want to bring it to the labor board because you don't want to be ambushed by the surprise and you want somebody who's going to listen to your whole case. But there are a number of good cases that you can bring to the labor board, and we'll talk about those in just a little bit. But I want to talk about other things, uh, reasons why you should not bring your case uh, to the labor board. Another big one is personal liability. Under California law, in general, you can only sue the company that you work for for labor violations such as minimum wage and overtime. So if the companies, you know, Microsoft or, you know, General Motors or something like that, they've got lots of money. There's no reason to worry about uh, going after individual liability. Unfortunately, the vast majority of companies that violate the law are these smaller companies that they either can't afford it or they don't know what the law is. And if they get a substantial judgment against them, they're simply going to declare bankruptcy, start the company up under a different name, and you know, essentially never pay you. And what federal law allows you to do is seek individual liability for those uh, unpaid overtime and minimum wage laws. Now, this comes as a shock to employers in California that a corporation will not shield you from individual liability for unpaid overtime under federal law. So if you have blue-collar workers and you know other people who are non-exempt under federal law um, and you're not paying them overtime, your corporation will not shield you. It doesn't matter. It's, it's not called piercing the corporate veil. It's nothing like that. If you are responsible for their wages and you have control of this person's job, then you are their employer in terms of what federal law is concerned with. And they can sue you directly and take money from your house and your car and your bank account and all that stuff and get your personal assets, even if you have a corporation, even if your corporation bank account is separate, even if you have perfectly maintained books and you never commingle any of your money. It's a very different legal theory, and it gives employees a lot of leverage in dealing with corporations. Even when we deal with large corporations that have lots of money and can easily pay these, it does make a big difference when a corporate manager or maybe the CEO, maybe the manager of HR, whoever it is that's making this determination and saying you are not getting your overtime, in in court you can actually sue them and say, well, if I am entitled to overtime, it's going to be you that has to pay me. Now, obviously, the company indemnifies them, but it does make a big difference to people when their name is personally on that lawsuit and ultimately they could be personally held liable for it. It does give you some uh, bargaining leverage, and you can't get that at the uh, the DLSE. Now, if the company's gone bankrupt, it's completely worthless bringing a claim at the DLSE because you'll you'll win your judgment, but you'll never be able to collect on, on it. So for, for federal minimum wage and overtime violations, it's... Uh, you know, don't bring your claim at the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement. Bring it in court. Go after the individual owner or operator of the company and get their personal assets because that's what's going to uh, allow you to actually recover that money. And that's why in last week I had talked about why the increase in federal minimum wage actually helps a lot of employees in California, even though California's minimum wage is much higher. Uh, if you have a claim and the company is bankrupt, suing under California's minimum wage law, it's great. You'll have a nice judgment. You can take it in your bedroom and frame it, but you're never going to get any cash for it because the company's gone defunct. If you have a federal claim, you are allowed to sue for federal minimum wage, 
and get that directly against the uh, employer. You can also get liquidated damages for minimum wage violations. California also awards liquidated damages for minimum wage violations, but federal uh, you can as well. So if you can sue the individual under federal law for a minimum wage violation, then you actually get to double what the minimum wage is in terms of liquidated damages. And if you are working any overtime, you can get that as well. So that's a, a big advantage to uh, suing in court rather than going to uh, the labor board. And anytime you have a question about recovery of money, always look in to see whether you have a federal claim and whether you can go after the individuals personally. There's also some theories under California law that may allow you to sue the, corp- you know, sue the uh, corporate owners individually. These are largely untested. I've got a couple cases going forward with these causes of action where we're suing individuals under California law. They come under something called the Private Attorney General Act. That's a little bit more complicated. I'm going to talk about that on some future shows and not get into it right now. Hopefully, we'll have some... Uh, some stuff we can report back on successes in these cases where we have been able to get to individuals under California law. The next big thing at the labor board is that there's two different theories you can sue for to recover back wages. There's essentially unpaid wages under California labor code, which has a statute of limitations of three years. But you can also sue for anything in terms of you know minimum wage, unpaid wages, uh, overtime violations, meal break violations under something known as a 17200, that's Business and Professions Code, Section 17200. It's also known as unfair competition law. And basically, it says anything that is against the law that a business uses as part of its practice is uh, illegal as a uh, as unfair competition because one employer is getting an advantage over somebody else. If, if employer A is not paying overtime and employer B is paying overtime, well, employer B is at a competitive disadvantage. They have to pour, pay more money for labor and employer A will be more successful. So that is an unfair competition law, and it allows you as an employee of the the company not paying overtime to sue that company under this law. Exact same rules. I mean, if you're exempt under labor law, you're exempt under unfair competition law. They're the exact same rules for how much money you get and whether you're entitled to it or not. The only difference is is that under unfair competition law, you can go back four years under the statute of limitation. Under California labor law, California labor code, you can only go back three years. Why that is so important is that the charter for the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement only allows them to enforce California labor code laws. So they can only enforce the three-year statute of limitation, and they cannot give an award going back a total of more than three years. So in the Iker case, which we discussed in the first half, interestingly enough, he had appealed it from the labor board, but his claim was limited to the three-year period, even though he was employed there longer because he didn't bring it in court initially to get that additional fourth year in there. So uh, fortunately, it ended up in court, but he wasn't able to go back and get that year. Uh, had he gone to court in the first place, his total damages would have been increased by basically 25% because he would have had an extra year to sue on. So anytime you've been at an employer longer than three years, definitely uh, consider your options heavily before going to the uh, the labor board. And unfortunately, they don't tell you this at the labor board. So you've got to know it on your own. And if you don't, then you're out of luck and potentially out of a lot of money. Now, the next thing about the labor board is important to me because I'm an attorney, and that gets into the award of attorney's fees. If you're going to do your case on your own, and if it's a simple case, I mean, if you have unpaid wages, you know, you didn't get your final paycheck, a paycheck bounced, um, they didn't pay out all your vacation upon termination or something simple like that, 
you know, you can go to the labor board. You can do that case yourself. And, you know, I mean, if they don't, you know, if they come in and surprise you, I mean, what's the big surprise? Your paycheck bounced, you know, bring in a, a you know, a statement from the bank saying it bounced and, uh, you know, you, you're probably going to win your case. Not a lot of complexity there. Uh, you know, when you're a computer programmer, IT worker, tech worker, something like that, uh, a manager of some type, and there's a big argument about whether you're entitled to overtime or not, then, you know, slow down before you go to the labor board. Make sure this is a case that you can adequately present yourself there if you're not going to use an attorney. If you do decide to use an attorney, the big problem is, is that the labor board can't award attorney's fees. So if you win your case at the labor board and you did decide to use an attorney, then you're stuck paying for that attorney yourself. Now, as an attorney, I like to get paid. So I generally don't bring cases at the labor board because if I prevail there, my client has to pay me. And that's essentially taking money from him to give to me for for something that he was entitled to in the first place. So I prefer to take cases directly to court because when you win there, you're entitled to attorney's fees and the defendant has to pay them to you. So that can greatly, first of all, it can can force a settlement uh, a lot earlier because the defendants all know this and they know if they lose in court, they're going to be hit with a ton of attorney's fees. Now, in the Iker case, he won at the, I mean, sorry, he lost at uh, at the labor board. So obviously when you lose, you're not entitled to any attorney's fees. When he appealed it to court, it started over as a, as a new trial, and he won at uh, in, in court. Now, for that, he was war- awarded his attorney's fees, which were $40,000. Now, he won about $50,000 in total damages. So had he had to pay those attorney's fees himself, it's great. He would have won 50000 bucks, but he would have had to pay his uh, attorney 40000 Realistically, his attorney was probably on some type of contingency. So it, it would have been probably 33% of it or 40% of that, whatever the attorney charges. But has, was he, did he have an agreement to pay the attorney their actual fees? It would have been 40000 bucks, and he wouldn't have been left with a whole ton of money. As it is, you know, he gets the uh, the forty thousand dollars. He gets the fifty thousand dollars. The attorney gets the forty thousand dollars in attorney's fees, and everybody's happy except for the defendant. So in court, you just have much more leverage in terms of forcing the defendant to settle because if they want to drag this thing all the way out to trial, your attorney's going to like it because chances are he can get uh, you know a big payoff at the end of the day, and the defendant's not going to like it, and they're only going to want to litigate that thing when they know they have a good shot of winning. Now. What I do want to talk about a little bit is this appeal process. It did come up in Iker, but it comes up in a lot of things. And when you take something to the DLSE, it's essentially giving the employer two strikes at bat. They can win at the DLSE, in which case you can appeal like you can in Iker. But that takes an incredible amount of courage because if you appeal a loss at the labor board... And the trial court sustains it. Essentially, you go back to trial, it starts all over, and you lose at trial. You must pay the defendant's attorney's fees. So in Iker, had he lost, not only would he not have been paid overtime, but he probably would have been on the hook for $40,000 or more in the defendant's attorney's fees. And that is catastrophic to most employees. They, they cannot afford that, and therefore they simply do not appeal a decision from the labor board. I get a number of people that come to me extremely unhappy with the decision from the labor board. It looks to me like the decision was substantially unfair, but once I explain to them that I'd be happy to represent them, happy to help them out on the appeal, but if they lose, they are going to be stuck paying the defendant's attorney's fees, 
most of the time, in fact, I, I can't even think of the time when somebody has wanted to pursue the f- appeal, most of the time they simply say, no, we are not going to pursue this appeal because if they lose, it's going to be catastrophic. Well, for like a minimum wage and overtime violation case, if you lose in court, you can't, uh, there's, 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 there's no mandatory attorney's fees. They can't award you the attorney's fees. If you win, you get attorney's fees. But if you lose, you don't have to pay their attorney's fees. It's a one, one-sided uh, fee-shifting agreement if you proceed directly to court. So that can be a big advantage. And like I said, the labor board, if, they, if the employer wins the first time, you're essentially out of luck. I mean, you can appeal. It does happen. But because of the penalties associated with losing that appeal, the vast majority of employees don't do it. On the flip side, if you win at the labor board, it doesn't mean it's the end of the story. The employer will likely simply appeal it. And then it goes to something that is called a trial de novo, which means trial, uh, you know, in the new all over again. So that pretty much throws out, I mean, not pretty much, it entirely throws out the labor commissioner's decision. It starts all over. The labor commissioner's decision is given no weight whatsoever by the trial court. And you bring in all your evidence, you put on all your witnesses again, and the judge is going to decide that case. And if he decides in your favor, you, you, um, it's, you win and you're sustained. But essentially, it's the same thing. You're back in court, you have to go through a full trial, and you're, you weren't any more advantageous than simply bringing the thing in court in the first place. And the employer can win. If the employer wins at the trial court level, your only option is to appeal it. Um, but given that you lost at the uh, the labor board and you lost at the trial court, you know your chances on success uh, of success on appeal probably aren't that great. So essentially, it really gives the employer two chances to win. If they win at the labor board, very slim chance that you're going to appeal. If they win at trial, then you know also a very slim chance that you're going to uh, appeal that, and they've ultimately won the case at that point. So with the appeal thing. Uh, the appeal issue, it uh, gives the employer a lot more advantages to bring things at the labor board. That's why my office doesn't regularly bring things at the labor board. There are some good claims to bring. Usually, you don't need an attorney. Like I say, those are if you are uh, unpaid your last paycheck, uh, paychecks are bouncing, there's some issue with your paid time off or vacation that wasn't properly paid out upon termination. Those are all great cases to bring to the labor board. You don't need an attorney. You don't need to pay an attorney to bring them. But anything else, chances are you want to at least explore using an attorney because of all these additional penalties that you can get, the liquidated damages, the going back four years, there's other private attorney general penalties. And there's other types of various penalties that the labor board won't entertain, such as pay stub violations and things like that that are a little bit more nitpicky areas of the law. But you are allowed to uh, pursue those in court. The other thing is that the labor board does not enforce and will not honor certain types of overtime. The big ones are loan officers and truck drivers. Now, loan officers generally are only entitled to overtime under federal law, which means the California Labor Board cannot enforce that and they cannot award uh, loan officers uh, overtime. So if you go to the the, the, uh, Labor Board as a loan officer, you're going to lose. They're going to determine that you're exempt. But unfortunately, the labor board doesn't tell you, oh, you filed this in the wrong court. You should have gone across the street into the federal courthouse or into the state courthouse where you can bring federal claims and filed your complaint there. And you probably would have done quite well on it. They simply tell you you're out of luck. You don't get any money. So in any case, if you are a a loan officer, also a truck driver, truck driver exemptions, uh, fairly complex, but generally they're covered by federal law rather than California law. So Most truck drivers are exempt under California law. 
from California overtime. So bringing a claim at the labor board is useless as a truck driver. But again, they're not going to tell you that you need to go across the street and file it in the courthouse. So in any case, that's what we have uh, on the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement. We're running a little bit behind on time. So let me get to our our questions here. Okay, some basic uh, wage and hour questions here. I work more than eight hours a day, but my employer says I don't get overtime until 40 hours in a week. Which one is it? Well, in California, it's both. You're entitled to overtime after eight hours in a day or 40 hours in the week. Now, you don't get both, but you do get either or. So, for instance, if you only work one day, but you work 10 hours in that day, and that's the only day in the entire week that you work, because you work more than eight hours in a day, you're entitled to two hours of overtime for that eight to 10 hours. Now, if you work let's say, five 10-hour shifts for a total of 50 hours, that's day one, two, three, four is all 10 hours a day. So you get two hours of of overtime for each one of those days. Technically, you're at 40 hours for the week at day number four, and some people think that day number five, all 10 hours should be overtime. That is not the case. What the law is is that you're entitled to overtime after eight hours in a day or after 40 straight-time hours in the week. So anything that's counted for daily overtime does not count towards that 40 hours for weekly overtime. So you have to have worked 40 straight time hours. And if you just work five days of 10 hour days, that's 50 hours in the week. You get basically two hours a day of overtime and daily overtime for a total of 10 hours. Uh, And at that point, you only worked 40 straight time hours in the week. So there's no additional weekly overtime that you get. You just get 10 hours of, uh, of overtime for that particular week. So we always get that. But in California, you know, like I say, there are some jobs that are not covered by California law. Uh, certain types of truck drivers are only entitled to overtime after 40 hours in a week. Loan officers, uh, you know, commission stockbrokers, things like that are only entitled to overtime after 40 hours in the week. They are not covered by California law. They can't bring their claims at the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement. So everybody else in California, it is eight hours a day. There is something called an alternative work week. If the employer had uh, had this election and followed certain procedures, they can switch to, let's say, four 10-hour days and not pay daily overtime. But uh, those exceptions, you know, not a lot of employers have done that. And, uh, you know, I do have some information on where you can look that up on the web to see if your employer complies with that law. If they do tell you they have an alternative work week, you can look it up online on the government's website and see if they complied with the law in that regard. And if they didn't, then you're entitled to a bunch of overtime for anything past eight in a day. So, okay. Next question. This one comes up a lot uh, for people that work odd shifts. It's a, it's a bit of an, an oddity in the law. The question reads, whenever I work past midnight, my employer stops paying overtime and switches back to straight time. My shift is 12 hours from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Interestingly enough, the way the law defines overtime, and you know, especially daily overtime, is any 24-hour period that the employer wishes to define. Now, it has to be consistent. They can't change it from day to day. But most employers go from midnight to midnight. And that means anything that crosses that boundary restarts the day and overtime is eliminated. You only get overtime after eight hours in a day. So come midnight, it's the very first minute of the day. You can't possibly have worked over eight hours in the day. Now, even though in that shift, you had already worked six hours, that's irrelevant. Overtime is computed on a daily basis or for weekly overtime on a weekly basis, and that's the way it's done. So this employer is allowed to not, you know, to reset the clock for overtime at midnight. Now, in this case, it's probably not going to make too much of a difference if you work consecutive days. So if you work 12 hours, you know, that's 6 p.m. to midnight and then midnight to 6 a.m., 
Well, that means in that day, the first day you worked six hours, and so far the second day you've worked six hours. Now, if later in that second day you clock back in for another six hours from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. the next day, you know, you've got 12 hours in that middle day, and they have to pay you on that. But it's a 24-hour period, so just chop off the 24-hour period, add up how many hours you worked inside that 24-hour period, and if it's more than eight, you get time and a half after eight, and if it's more than 12, you get double time after 12. But if it's a different 24-hour period, if, if even if it's on your same shift, then you're out of luck and, and it resets. So you, let's say you work 48 hours straight and you never clock out. You would still go back to uh, straight time after the first 24 hours. You'd be on double time for those 12 hours, but then come midnight, boom, you'd be right back to uh, straight time, even though you've worked for 24 hours and haven't clocked out. So that's simply the way the law is. Doesn't uh, doesn't seem particularly fair, but there's not a lot of cases where it comes up. So, uh, you know, that's all you have to go with. Next question is very similar to that. Uh, I worked eight days in a row. Aren't I supposed to get double time until I get a day off? No, you're not. Uh, first of all, the law is you, you don't get double time for consecutive days. On your seventh consecutive day in the work week, you automatically get overtime for the seventh day for the first eight hours, and then you get double time after eight. Normally, you only get double time after 12, but when you it's the seventh consecutive day in the work week, it is after eight hours. Now, the big difference is that, you know, in terms of uh, overtime and, and everything like that, it, it's the same thing with the day. It The whole work week resets uh, every single week. So you can't possibly work eight consecutive days inside a week. The weeks have seven days. So after you've worked seven days in a week, it starts all over and you're back to straight time. So even if you had worked you know, all these hours during the week and you'd worked seven consecutive days, you do get that extra premium on that seventh day, but then it recycles back to uh, straight time on the, uh, uh, you know, on, the, on the first day. Also, just because you work eight days in a row doesn't mean that you worked on the seventh consecutive day of the work week. You have to have worked, you know, just like the day starts at midnight, the work week can be defined as any period, seven-day period by the employer. Generally, it's Sunday to Saturday or Monday to Sunday, but it is a seven-day period. And if you work, let's say, the last four days in one week and the first four days in the next week, but you had the other three days off in both weeks, you only worked four days in one week and you only worked four days in another week, even though combined it gave you eight consecutive days, there's no overtime, additional overtime premium that is uh, that is due for that one. So I'd wanted to get to, uh, you know, some other topics here, but uh, but we're, we're well behind on time and we're not going to have time to get into sexual harassment. Uh, so I'll get into that, uh, you know, postpone that topic over uh, for next week. I'll talk briefly about the, the truck driver exemption because I keep postponing that and I get a lot of questions about it. I will post a lot of stuff up on my website about, uh, about truck drivers and we can get into it there. But, you know, the main thing is, is that truck drivers are generally exempt under California law and they are non-exempt under federal law unless they drive across state lines or are engaged in interstate commerce. So it's a little bit tricky in terms of what is interstate commerce and when this exemption kicks in. I will talk more about this in, in next week's broadcast, but if you, if you I've been receiving a lot of questions, especially from employers on this subject, please visit my website. I posted some new information about truck drivers, and hopefully it's, uh, hopefully it's helpful to you. So, okay, didn't quite get to everything we wanted to today, but we have plenty of material for next week. Tune in, same, uh, same time, same channel, and I will see you, uh, see you then. Thanks a lot. This broadcast has been a commercial advertisement for
Tracy, not meant to be legal advice, not necessarily established a jury-client relationship. Any statements made during this broadcast are relevant to or not guaranteed any outcome. Michael Tracy is licensed as an attorney only in California.